0: Bye. Hi friends, welcome to our Sabbath School study hour here at the Granite Bay Hilltop Church in the Greater Sacramento area. It is so good to be able to spend this time with you and diving into the Word of God. Thank you for spending this time with us. Before we actually go on, I'd like to invite you to take advantage of our free offer. This week's offer is called Footsteps, A Closer Walk with Jesus, and if you'd like it, you could call the number 866-788-3966, and you'll ask for the offer number uh, 736, so offer number 736. If you're in the United States or in the continental North America, you could text SH163 to the number 40544, and then you'd get a link to a digital download or if you're outside the USA uh, or you know continental, continental North America, you could go to studyaftvorg sh 163 and you could also get a digital download of this free offer. This goes very well with the lesson that we're studying this week. Um, it goes hand in hand with what we're going to be talking about. So, if you'd like to take advantage of that, don't miss out. Um, before we start, I'd like to invite you to bow your head and let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord. Thank you so much for, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for this mission that you have embarked on since the beginning of the whole problem of sin, Lord, and even before that, because as the lamb slain since the foundation of the world, you knew what was going to happen, and yet you still drew close to us. So thank you for that. As today we talk about our mission to our neighbor, allow us to understand what you mean by that, Lord. What is the implication here? How should that change our life? Allow my words to fall to the background or into the background of what we're talking about and allow this message to come from heaven and touch the hearts of those who need it, Father. I ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we've been studying this whole lesson that has everything to do with God's mission that should become our mission. And so we've talked about, you know, the different aspects, the different variables of what it means to believe that The first missionary, the real missionary is God and we are just following on his footsteps and also the implications of that. What does it mean to have a mission coming from God and um, nurturing that in our life as well? And so today as we're studying lesson number seven, which has the title mission to my neighbor, that is precisely what we're talking about. It's our response. It's truly how we view ourselves regarding our neighbor. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean by that? And so um, I hope that you truly are encouraged by what we're going to be talking about. Now, you will notice that this lesson will be taught today by me in a different way than I usually do it you see usually when I teach a lesson or you know I cover a lesson I go through each day each individual day so you know we'll have Sunday's lesson Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday and so I'll draw the different lessons that are coming from that specific day and then that kind of goes into the overarching theme of that week today we're going to do something a little bit different So do know that this is intentional. This isn't how I usually do it, but I felt that for this week's lesson, it's how I wanted to do it. So I'm not going to be covering each individual day in specific days, right? So I'm not going to tell you, well, today's lesson is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on what we're going to do is we're going to be withdrawing several different lessons from the story that's mentioned in this week's lesson, because really what we're covering is a a portion of the Bible. It's a text that we find here in the Bible. It's one of the most famous, most well-known parables of Christ. And so I want you to study your lesson and extract From what I'm teaching here, extract what you see in this week's lesson because it's all there. But I I mixed up the order a little bit and so that's why I found it better to do it this way. Okay? So that's the purpose here. I I hope you understand that these lessons that we teach here at at the Sabbath School Study Hour It's to enhance your study of the lesson. It's not to substitute it. So these lessons here, they're not meant to truly substitute your own personal study. I feel that in our day and age, sometimes it's easy to relegate our study of the Bible to pastors or to teachers online, or we live in a digital age, so it's a lot easier. But that does not substitute your own personal study. It can't. And so, please do study your lesson, look up the Bible verses, look up the memory text, look at the answers to, or, or, you know, write down answers to questions that you find presented in the lesson, and that way you will get so much more out of your own personal study. And then allow these lessons to enhance that study, all right? So, in any case... That disclosure being given, I'd like to read with you our memory verse. The memory verse comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 27. So Luke chapter 10, verse 27 says this. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So that's our, our week's verse, our memory verse. Now, before we get into the story, I'd like to tell you um, uh, about another uh, a preacher, a pastor that lived in the last century. His name was Fordyce, Fordyce W. Denimore. And he was you know, a great Adventist evangelist and pastor. He lived, he was born in 1902. He died in 1980. And he became an expert. And to me, this is the most needed kind of expert uh, in today's world, in today's you know, Adventist world. Um, he became an expert in reaching out to former Adventists. And he actually wrote a book about it. And the name of the book is um, Seeking His Lost Sheep. And it's an extraordinary book, Seeking His Lost Sheep. And in his book, Pastor Dedimore, he he emotionally observes a very interesting thing. So here is our memory verse that I forgot to, uh, to pass for you. So that's our memory verse. And I want you to really pay attention to this quote that we find here. Um, The quote says, I want to go home, but I don't want to go home alone. And so that's given in the context of going to heaven. And what Pastor Denimore is saying is that he wants to go to heaven, but he doesn't want to go by himself. He doesn't want to go alone. And I think that that is an aspect of this whole conversation that we oftentimes forget because when thinking about going to heaven, we sometimes have a very... Uh, Individualistic mindset. Well, I want to go to heaven. But I'll tell you, friends, going to heaven alone, of course, going to heaven at all is going to be indescribable. (laughs) Literally, I can't describe it. But going with your loved ones, going with your family. I was talking today to a friend of mine that he was recently baptized, and I studied the Bible with him for, you know, about a year. And so he was baptized quite recently. And one of the things that I ask, um, I actually asked this in the, in, in, in the last lesson that I covered here at our Sabbath School Study Hour, but something that I ask my Bible students to do at our last lesson that has to do with discipleship is to get a piece of paper, cut out, you know, or not cut out, but draw four lines, right? Well, actually four sides, so one line vertical, one line horizontal, and um, it's really called, or this friend of mine, he called it uh, prayer for, square for prayer is what he calls it. And so I, I found that title quite interesting. And so on that square, you'll put down the name of your family members, the name of your close friends, the name of people that you know, acquaintances from, from, from work or from school. And then, then on the fourth quadrant, you put down the names of people, um, or maybe not even the names because you might not know their names, but people that you just meet randomly. You know, a clerk at the bank or um, uh, someone at the grocery store, people that you just, just randomly uh, meet. And you pray for them and you start praying for them. And so this friend of mine, he started doing that, and he started praying for this group of people. And so this, you know, uh, recently, he went went, uh, on this trip with his friends, these friends, these close friends that he's been praying for, for, you know, not over two weeks. And these are people that have nothing to do with God. They're not particularly religious. They don't go to church. And because of his experience, his conversion, his story of coming to Christ, they became so intrigued, so interested, that they are now, they are asking for uh, Bible studies. And so he's going to start studying the Bible with them. So you see here that this this mission of going to heaven, it's not something that's meant to be done individually by ourselves. We don't want to go uh, home Alone, And so that's what he's talking about here. The question that we should be asking ourselves as we consider God as the great missionary is what about us? What about us? Are we planning to go to heaven, our final destination, our final home alone? Has anyone been left in your wake? And I want you to to ask yourself that. Has anyone been left in your wake? Anyone that you could have helped to get there? To arrive there? Someone whose eternal life really was changed, their eternal destination was changed because of God using you in their life. You know, in the same book on page 7, Pastor Dedhamor poses this unsettling question where he says, What if you were the lost one in the night? Would you not be thankful if someone came to rescue you? I know that I would. It's a good question to be asked and it should be answered Sincerely. We are friends and we will be eternally grateful because someone took the time to sit down with us, to reach out to us, to talk to us with their testimony, with a visit, with a Bible study, with an invitation, perhaps a glow track. Can you imagine trillions of years down the road and in eternity in paradise, someone that perhaps you didn't have that much contact with here comes to you and says, look, you may not know this yet, but I am here because God used you to get me here. I can't imagine what that will imply, what that will, you know, what that will feel like. And so that's the question that we should ask ourselves quite frequently. You know, sometimes we say that people just don't want to know anymore. People are too distant. They're too, uh, people, they don't feel they're not interested in God. That's not a valid argument, friends. Because that is the spirit in which Jesus came to our dark planet. A planet that was completely alienated. Men, at that time, they even assassinated God. So it could be said that, well, that planet, they're too far gone. They're not interested. They don't want to know. But that's not the case that we see in scripture. Jesus came to this world in the greatest rescue mission of history. And apparently when he died, not a single convert, even among his closest friends, but but, many finally did come forth eventually. And he became the savior, the friend, the counselor, the comforter, the peace of billions of people. And so you cannot measure success when it comes to this um, by any standards that are truly recognized by human capacity of, of understanding numbers or results. The results here are only seen by God. And so you can't count anyone out because sometimes the person that seems to be the farthest, actually they're one miracle away, they're one moment away, they're one uh, circumstance away from coming. You know, we give thanks and praise for his missionary journey to our coast, to our side of this whole, this whole narrative, this whole story, in our dark night that has been ravaged by sin, to search for his lost sheep. The Bible tells us that he came to seek and to save those who were lost. That was his mission. Me, you, and billions of others. What would your life be without Jesus? What, what would it be like? What would it look like? Where would you be? You know, friends, personally, I can't even imagine where I'd be, what I would be. That's how much of a difference he makes every day. I cannot imagine because he has become everything to me. Now, this is where we get into what the lesson is talking about this week. Because while we're going to be studying this parable, uh, and it's a very known well-known parable, very well-remembered, very beloved parable. I feel that sometimes a lot of the lessons, a lot of, the, a lot of what Jesus is saying through it is lost. However, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's an exclusive parable to the gospel according to Luke. It's exclusive to this gospel. And there are certain similarities between Luke and the figure of the Samaritan, because Luke holds the distinction of being the only non-Jewish author of the Bible. Now, in the narrative described by Luke, the doctor of the law's initial question that we find here in verse uh, 25 is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's how we're introduced to this story right here. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the contradiction of the question is obvious, it's blatant, because he already knows the answer to the question. When we consider the storyline, we see that this man isn't asking a question that he doesn't know, or, or doesn't know the answer to, he's asking a question that he does know the answer to. And in his opinion, in his mind, he knows that it is by doing something, right? You'll see that the question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so he thinks that it's by doing. And that's the classic example of salvation by works, which is the very definition of legalism. Now, most Jews back then believed that salvation was the result of what they did. It was an extremely, it it was a transaction. I will do this, I will be like this, I will behave like this, and then I will receive a reward, I will receive a compensation, I will deserve, my merit will acquire this. Salvation, And so that's how they, they understood the salvation that came from God. And his next contradiction in this narrative, in the, in the, in the story, is what must we do to inherit, inherit eternal life? That's literally the word that he uses. And to be an heir, I mean, here you see the contradiction of the question, because what can you do to be an heir? Nothing. There's absolutely nothing that you can do to be an heir, because to be an heir, again, we can't do anything. We have to be born into the family. That's how you become an heir. You are born into the family. And so this question here, friends, is relevant to us because it suggests that there really isn't anything more important than answering it. That's what he's saying. If ultimately the greatest question is, what can I do to gain eternal life? This question becomes monumental. What can be done? And we connect this matter with another question that Jesus answers somewhere else in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, where he proposes that at the end of the day, what good is it for a man to gain the entire world and to lose his life? You'll find that in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. So what's the use of gaining the whole world and losing something that is priceless, that is invaluable, such as life? This is how the word soul is translated in most occasions in the New Testament. The soul is your life. A human being is a living soul. So what purpose or what gain is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul, to lose your life? And Jesus answers this question here, given or proposed by this teacher of the law, by evoking from him a well-known portion of scripture, a well-known commandment of love. Now, The question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we saved because we love or do we love because we're saved? Now, a lot of people, they would answer it or they would answer that question with the first first option. We are saved because we love. But friends, the truth, according to the Bible, is that we love because we're saved. We come to know him. We come to love him because he first loved us. That is literally what the Bible tells us. And so Jesus here, in this quote, he's being quite ironic. Because this man, he comes to Christ with already a proposed answer. What must I do to inherit? And so you see that he's already implying that he knows you have to do something to inherit this eternal life. And so Jesus, he, he kind of goes along with what this man is saying. And basically what Jesus is saying is, if you think that it is by doing, And trying to, as the commandment says, love God above all things and your, and your neighbor as yourself, well, go and do it then. So Jesus is basically calling him out by saying, well, if you're asking me a question that you already know, well then allow your own answer to be the answer to your question. And here Jesus is only pointing out the formidable impossibility of the proposed answer to the man's question. It's hard to save oneself by doing as it is impossible in our own efforts to fulfill the essence of the law. So, after all, this cannot be the path of salvation. Jesus here, he is not proposing that you can be saved, that you can inherit salvation by doing something. And so, as it becomes clear in this dialogue right here, the doctor of the law, who since his childhood had kept every law and done everything, he was not sure of his salvation. And so, that's where the question comes, what shall I do? And friends, what that reveals to me is a very sad reality because this man had tried, 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 and tried his best and he still felt outside the scope of the kingdom of heaven. He still felt, felt excluded from God's kingdom. So what does that mean to us? That we can try, try, try and still feel empty. Have you ever felt that way? Has that ever been your reality where you try, you try, you do this, you read your Bible, you go to church, you pray, you talk to some people, you're trying your best and your life is resumed. It, it kind of comes down to trying, 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 attempting to please God only to feel or to find yourself lacking something quite mysteriously to yourself. And so as this man, he's testing Christ, you kind of do see that uh, some, some, some form of, 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 of um, sincerity, it shines through what do I do? I've tried everything and I still feel lost. He had already tried and didn't feel that the matter was resolved for him. The text tells us that he asked with the intention of testing Jesus. So did he lack sincerity? Does the fact that he's testing Christ mean that he lacks sincerity? The text doesn't make it clear. We don't know. I mean, if I were asking someone such an important question, wouldn't I want to be sure that that person could supply the answer? And so there's nothing inherently wrong in testing Christ if the testing is done to see if he's speaking according to the Bible, which of course Jesus did because Jesus quoted no one except himself in the pages of the Old Testament. But here we don't know. He might have been insincere here, but the truth is that he chose the wrong rabbi to test. Because as was Jesus' method, he answers the question with a question. And verse 26 tells us, what is written? How do you read it? What is written? How do you read it? And so Jesus gives back the question to the man. In every circumstance, Jesus referred the questions posed to him to the scriptures, the ultimate and indisputed authority. And Jesus leaves this doctor confused, this teacher confused. He already knew the commandment of love. It, could it be that simple that it's just that? And indeed, it's foolish to answer the question that we already know. Love for God and love for one's neighbor are the essence of the law. And so the teacher of the law, maybe he thinks, well, Jesus didn't understand my question. I have to explain it better. Perhaps he felt ashamed that Jesus called out his, his, uh, his testing, his, the fact that he was testing him with a question that he already technically knew the answer to. A summary of the two tablets of the law is the answer that is given. But the question remains, how can someone obey the commandment of love while separate from the source of love? And that was the problem with Judaic legalism. The idea that you could, by what you did, acquire salvation. And even to this day, when we think that our obedience and our efforts are the answer to our basic problem, they could never be. Salvation is not the result of what we do, friends. It could never be. But, what of, but of what he, Jesus, did for us. Even the after the experience of salvation, even after that experience, our salvation—or sorry, our obedience—is not really our obedience, but it's His obedience in us. What does Ephesians chapter two, verse eight through ten say? That salvation is by grace, and actually, that's the next verse that appears here. That it says, "For by grace you have been saved, and this is not from you, so that no one may boast." And if you continue reading the verse, it says that even the good works that you do, they have been prepared beforehand, that you should walk in. Them them. So even your obedience is his obedience in you. That's what Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says when it says, Christ in us, hope of glory. It's Christ in us. That is our hope of glory. It could never be anything different. His hope in us. Our hope is not based on what we can do, but on what he did for us completely, objectively. Everything else is Worthless currency, quicksand. So someone could then ask, well, is obedience then important or unimportant? Unimportant or important? What do I do? Do I have to obey? Of course we do, friends. Of course obedience is important. But it is the result. It's not the cause or the foundation. It could never be. Again, that's where Ephesians 2 verse 8 will tell us, for by grace you've been saved. And that doesn't come from you it's a gift it's done by faith grace is the gift faith is the instrument by which we take hold of that gift and so you see that everything here comes from god the only part the only participation that we have is our sin of which we have to surrender to him that's it you surrender that old person that old lifestyle that you used to be and you surrender it to him but the grace the faith all of it grace is the foundation Faith is the instrument, of, a, as I, I said. But faith is also a gift. Don't think that faith is something that you have to come up with on your own. Faith as an instrument, it's also a gift because faith, as the Bible tells us, comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So what does that mean? You know, I like to compare having faith, is, it's like falling in love, right? Having faith or, or growing faith in you, it's like falling in love because love doesn't depend on your ability of producing it in yourself. I remember... I actually remember the first time that I saw my wife. First time, we were in college, and uh, I was in the second year of college, and she was just arriving there. She was in the first year of college, and I was in the um, I was you know on the second floor, and she was coming up the stairs. Now, at that point, I, you know, we had never spoken to each other, and we didn't start speaking to each other for years still, but I remember that in my mind. That was the first time that I saw her, and I thought that she was a pretty girl. I'd never seen her before, and, you know, later on, um, yeah, I mean, we lived, we coexisted in the camp on the campus for years, and we never spoke to each other, and it was only a few years later that we started to interact with each other, and it was uh, by chance or by providence, you know, but my falling in love with her did not depend on my ability of kind of pushing myself into it. That's not how love works. It, it wasn't about me waking up and saying today I'm going to love her, today I'm going to love her, I'm going to feel these feelings toward her. No. It depended entirely upon her, on who she is, passively on her, because I don't think she had to try very hard, uh, anything, of producing those feelings in me. So love... And this is like faith as well. It doesn't depend on your ability of creating, of going into gymnastics or exercises to create those feelings in you. It depends on the ability that the other person have of pro- has of producing those feelings in you. And so it is with faith. Faith doesn't depend on your ability of creating, of producing magically or miraculously that faith in you. It depends on the ability that God has of producing faith in you. However, just like love, you have to open yourself up to that possibility. You have to be in that environment. If I shut myself off, well, then nothing will grow. But that's how faith and that's how love works. Do you want to have faith? Stay close to him. Study the word. Pray. Go to church where other people are also falling in love with him. Speak about him. It's the same thing as love. The story here of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' answer to the follow-up question that is posed to him by the teacher of the law, who here in the story, embarrassed, tries to justify himself because his next question is, well, who is my neighbor? He had proposed the answer to the question. Jesus had said, well, what do you find? What do you think? How do you interpret the law? The man then quotes The law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, well, okay, if that's your answer, go and do it. But the man is called out. It's obvious that he's not being entirely sincere here. And so he proposes a follow-up question, which is this, well, who is my neighbor? And so here he's trying, have you ever done that before? Have you ever kind of been embarrassed by your own question? And then you try to justify your your question by a follow-up question that seems to be deep and smart and philosophical, only then to understand that neither of your questions or neither of what what you said is actually truly deep. So that's what's happening here. Who is my neighbor? He's implying here, he's challenging Jesus, implying that, look, the question isn't that simple, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? We're still discussing this. You're not off the hook. This question was one that sparked many controversial discussions among the Jewish rabbis. This was something that they talked about. This isn't a question that's just popping up here. This is a very common discussion point for Jewish rabbis. And among these discussions, among the the circles of philosophers and theologians that would discuss this question, they had lengthy arguments regarding the identity of the neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Is it someone from my own race, from my own people? Is it someone from my social class? Is it someone from my neighborhood? Those in my society, who is my neighbor? What this teacher really is asking, what he's truly asking Jesus, is to what extent should I extend the category of neighbor? How far does this go? He was seeking a definition for the term neighbor. Because if we ask, who is my neighbor? we might conclude that there are those who are not considered neighbors. Do you see the implication? If you're able to define, well, this one is my neighbor, then you're also able to define, well, this one is not my neighbor. That's what's being implied by the question. The teacher of the law demanded that Jesus present a standard by which to discern between who should and shouldn't be considered a neighbor. Where to draw the line. And what Jesus does, it's simply mind-blowing, and this is where you see the genius of Christ. You see the fact that no one could ever come up with someone like Jesus Christ. Coming up with someone like Jesus Christ would be a greater miracle than the actual Jesus Christ. You could not. And here we see the genius of Jesus because he tells a story as an answer. And the story begins in verse 30 where it says, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this route between Jerusalem and Jericho was approximately sixteen miles long now that 's a good walk all right i don 't know if you 've ever walked sixteen miles it 's a pretty good walk and it went through a gorge in the, Judean, in, the, in the Judean desert. It was a very dangerous shortcut. it was a very dangerous path and journey, uh, descending over nine hundred um, about well nine hundred meters, which is about 18, uh, 2,700 feet so that's, uh, that's the depth here. So, this is where my, my Brazilian comes out. The Brazilian in me comes out where I'm using that metric system. And so, um, it's about uh, 2,700 uh, meters. Sorry, feet, not meters, feet. The terrain off, uh, offered a very uh, natural refuge for thieves and for robbers because it was wy- wildly and it went up and down and it twisted and there were caves and, in the paths here. And so there were uh, several different kidnappers, robbers, and thieves. It was a scene of constant violence. The road taken by this lonely traveler, it became known as the path of blood, the road of blood, the bloody path because of so many people that went through that path and were either murdered or robbed and beaten. And so this man here in Jesus's story, a Jewish man, took the perilous route and fell into the hands of robbers who, as the text tells us, after robbing him of everything, even his clothes, severely injured him and left him half dead. So that's the the situation here in this story. The use of the plural robbers suggests that there were several, there's many of them here, many against one, no chance of defense. Nothing that he could do. Attempted murder without giving the victim a chance of defense, jurists would say. Now, with the robber's actions, Jesus describes the opposite of loving one's neighbor. He intentionally describes a very extreme situation. Jesus reduces the victim in his story to absolute silence. So what we're seeing here, as Jesus paints a picture, and you'll see this often in his parables, as Jesus paints the picture of of what's going on, Jesus was very good at drawing out contrasts. So if the question, if the primary question, the first question is, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus is very clearly establishing what it means to not be a neighbor right? He's describing, he starts from the opposite, from one extreme. And that's what he does here. He describes the extreme. And in doing so, he reduces the victim of the story to absolute silence. Thieves usually demand your money or your life. If you've lived, uh, I don't know, if you've, well, not if you've lived, but I don't know if anyone, you know, perhaps someone watching has been mugged before, has been robbed. I have never been, but my wife has. You know, she was kind of held up at gunpoint back in Brazil, and they stole her phone from her. It was a very traumatic experience. They, um, they stole the phone as she was, she was... She had just broken up with a boyfriend or had been broken up with, and, um, and she was crying, sobbing, and talking to her mom, and the robber just came up at gunpoint and <laughs> robbed her phone, and she has no idea what's going on. It's a very sad story, but it's kind of comical, you know, in hindsight. But... Um, and that, so in that situation, I don't even know how I got there, but in that situation of being robbed, of being, you know, mugged here, um, the, 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 the implication was either you give me what I want or something very bad is going to happen. That's the implication. And these men here, these robbers, they did take everything. They took the money. They took the coat. They took the saddlebag. They probably took the mount. Well, not probably. They took the mount because later on we find that there was no mount um, that he had. They took everything and they almost took his life. So it wasn't about give me your money or give me your life. It was give me your money and almost your life. That's what happened here in the story. An injured, half dead, covered in blood, it is made impossible to identify him or for him to identify himself. So the question in the story, the question that Jesus is implying, the question coming from anyone looking at the scene is, well, then who is he? It's just a man left for dead on the side of the road. Who is he? Who is this man? Whose son is he? Whose father? Jewish? Samaritan? Gentile? What's his profession? How much does he make? What's his his ethnicity? These are usually the questions that we ask. Who is that person? But Jesus intentionally completely eliminates any possibility of identification. It's impossible to identify who this man is. From an external source, someone just walking along, they don't know. Beaten, left half dead, probably naked, the thieves took his clothes, no idea. Who is this man? I don't know. The fallen man is even unable to call for help. That's the state that he's in. Powerless to persuade anyone to assist him, to help him, or even to offer a reward. He cannot make his case or ask for mercy intentionally, Jesus places this injured man in his story entirely in the hands of the other, the passerby. And the story continues telling us that by chance, a priest was going down that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest was coming from the temple, from his religious duties, heading home to Jericho, which since ancient times was one of the main residences for priests. It's where a lot of the priests would live. He saw this man in need, but he passed by on the other side. An unusual coldness, a brutal violation of the commandment of love, of loving one's neighbor. Here was someone, probably from his own people, in the way that he was looking at the person, in a situation of need, emergency. And similarly, a Levite came to that place. You'll see it in the next verse. Levites belonged to the second tier religious service officials, a privileged group responsible for the liturgy and the the temple surveillance. He seemingly came closer to the injured men. Was he afraid of robbers, maybe? Maybe afraid of ceremonial contamination? people couldn't touch, you know, the Jews, they didn't touch uh, blood or corpses or because then they would become impure. Maybe that's what's happening here in this man's mind. We don't know, but the text tells us that he also passed by on the other side, a phrase that became proverbial for omission, indifference, distance, being withdrawn. You know, friends, when I, when I read this story, And this is usually when you read the Bible. You try to place yourself in the optics of whoever the subject of the story or of the situation is. And I can, you know, in my mind, I can remember times where I have been either of these two men, where I have noticed people in need and either passed by, omitted myself, refrained from interacting. And sadly, I believe that most of us could relate to that reality as well. How do we justify that? And we all have justifications, don't get me wrong. You know, in our mind, we we probably have several good excuses. And I'm sure that these two men did as well. The priest, the Levite, they probably had very good justifications, very good excuses as to why they didn't stop. But at the end of the day, did any of those excuses matter? In Jesus' story, to God in human flesh, did it matter? Did any of those excuses actually justify anything? It doesn't seem so. Jesus establishes the contrast between these first two travelers and then a third figure, a third person here in the story. Now, the people listening to the story would expect this third character to be an ordinary Jewish layperson, an Israelite. That's who their hero would be could be. That's what they expected. But instead, Jesus, he introduces a member of a hated community when he says, a certain Samaritan. A certain Samaritan. And here, friends, we, we lose the strength, the power, the shock factor of the illustration because we are unfamiliar with the extent of the hostility between Jews and Samaritans. We just, it's it's difficult for us to understand, for us to grasp the level of hatred between these two people. For modern Christians, the noun Samaritan, it usually automatically attracts the adjective good, the good Samaritan. The term Samaritan has become synonymous today with being a good neighbor, willing to help those in need. But in the days of Jesus in which he told this story, this association would be the last thing imaginable. No one would ever expect it. Samaritans, due to their racial mix, they were sort of a hybrid uh, mix between the the Israelites and uh, and, and Gentiles. When uh, the northern kingdom of Israel fell um, to Assyria, uh, I believe in 722 B.C., or 721, um, never again did you have a northern kingdom. All of those people, they were then taken to far off places and other peoples were brought to those places. That was the form of social uh, genocide that these conquering lands would, would do. It wasn't really by killing primarily or exclusively, it was by um, mixing up these nations. And so that's what we have here in the Samaritans. They were considered worse than pagans. Cursed in synagogues, cursed publicly. They couldn't be accepted as proselytes or what that means is that they could not convert to Judaism. It was impossible. They had no part in the resurrection or eternal life. That's, that was Jewish theology. Their testimony was worthless in courts. Sitting near them was considered one of the causes of death. Eating their food was worse than eating pork. Their men and their women were considered impure vermin. They couldn't be responsible for an Israeli orphan. That's how they considered them. That's how they were considered by their Jewish neighbors. And it was the same thing the other way around. Don't think that it was just one-sided. But with this Samaritan, Jesus introduces a perfect example of neighborly love. Jesus not only demonstrates that love can arise in the most unexpected places and from the least expected people, but he de- delivers here a powerful blow to the racial, social, religious, and denominational intolerance of the Jews of his time. He attacks their superiority syndrome. Jesus subverts in one stroke the values of time, of the time. Who could ever think? Who could ever expect? Who could ever consider a Samaritan to be good? That's crazy talk. Now, this Samaritan's action is a perfect representation of love for one's neighbors because the text tells us here that this man, he looks beyond what he sees physically, and the Bible tells us that he felt compassion for him. He felt compassion for him. In the Hellenistic culture of the time, the Greeks centralized their emotions in the noble organs of the body. The heart, the lungs, the liver, the intestines. The verb to feel compassion here means quite literally to be filled with compassion right down to the guts. That's how strong the terminology is. Jesus describes compassion as the foundation for all of the Samaritan's actions. He saw what the others saw, but with the difference that compassion has kind eyes. Love has kind eyes. God's love has the kindest of eyes. He was the only one who had every reason to move on, to not stop. He was the only non religious person in the story. He had a mount, he had money, and above all, he was a Samaritan while the fallen man was Jewish. But he decides to get involved. No one truly loves until they step out of their way, out of their comfort zone, deviating from their path to then serve. That is true love. Jesus makes that clear. It's easy to love, to help, to to give presence to those that you love, to those that are kind to you, to those that treat you well. It's a difficult thing to do that for people who deride and mock you, people who you don't love, who you don't know, people who perhaps go out of their way to hurt you. That's a difficult thing. I know it is. But here, Jesus emphasizes the depth of the Samaritan's actions, detailing his involvement, how close he got to the story. He uses the supplies from his own journey to take care of the stranger, He uses his own oil, his own wine, classic remedies of antiquity, used for first aid. The wine to purify the wound, the oil to soothe and embalm. He goes out of his way, his own expenses, to help this stranger. And we know not that much. We know nothing about the Samaritan either, his background, his story. What we know is that when he passes by, he doesn't see just one other corpse, one other human person to pass by. He sees a recipient of God's love. And this here, friends, this isn't mere humanitarianism. We live in the time of virtue signaling. We live in the time of humanitarianism that is uh, done mostly for optics, for cameras. That isn't what we see here. No one is looking. No one is seeing. With a surprising touch of love for one's neighbor... He takes the man to an inn. He stayed by his side all night. All night. He took care of him. Have you ever taken care of someone that you love, you know, but while they're sick? A few years ago, I believe, I believe it was 21, 22, maybe last year, my little brother Michael, he visited us. And on this trip, it was last year. And on this trip, he, um, he got sick. He got COVID. And... Michael has Down syndrome. And what that means is that his system is already a little bit weaker than, uh, than someone that doesn't have uh, Down syndrome. And so there, was, uh, there were studies that were coming out saying that people with Downs and, and some other, they, had, uh, they were weaker. Their, their immune system, their, their system was weaker. And many of them had um, a higher uh, incidency of, of death. There was a higher death rate. And so I got so worried And Michael, because he doesn't know how to describe situations very well, he doesn't, you know, and um, he just feels bad and he he can't describe it very well. So I got so worried, and he did get for about a week, he got very sick. And uh, I was at his beck and call. For that week, I slept by his side. Every little cough that he gave, I would jump up from the bed and, you know, I would, I, I got so worried. I didn't sleep for a week, basically. At the end of the week, I was almost passing out. My wife had to order me to go to bed and she took care of him because I, yeah, and, and it's difficult, you know, that level of care, that level of, of, of just being worried about someone that is going through that moment, someone that you love uh, inherently, you love because they are close to you. And so I can relate to that, to that level of, of, of care. But for someone that you don't know, for someone that is from a people that hate you, for someone that probably wouldn't do the same thing if, it, for, if, if the roles were inverted, and that's what this man is doing. He spends the night caring for the man at his side, of the bed for you know when he's coughing when he's breathing shallow to roll him on the side to you know to maybe massage his 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 chest his his um his his lungs and so the the level of care of closeness to the story it's it's uh, yeah it's it's moving not only that but the next morning he placed two denarii for additional expenses he promised that further costs would be covered upon his return The emphasis here is on the Samaritan's proximity to the situation. The presence of the personal pronoun in Greek, I will pay you. I will take out of mine to return to pay. Jesus sets the scene for the conclusion, which is the key to the whole story. And that's often misunderstood. I want you to go back and to recall the initial question. What was the question made by the doctor of the law? Do you remember it? The question was, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That was the question proposed by the teacher of the law. But this astounding, this incomparable Jesus, he reverses the question. He changes the question. Because Jesus' question is, who acted like the neighbor? The man's question was, who is my neighbor? But Jesus' answer to the question with this other question to the man is, well, who acted like the neighbor? Do you see the subtlety? Do you see the nuance of this change? Our difficulty in understanding what Jesus meant is in the fact that naturally, we are tempted to ask the same question as the expert of the law. Well, who is my neighbor? Who do I treat well? Who do I not have to treat well? But what's surprising about Christ's answer is that the neighbor is not the object of the action, but the subject of it. That is, the neighbor is not the one receiving the action, but the one carrying it out. From Christ's point of view, the neighbor isn't the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. The neighbor is among the three who passed, on, who passed by on the way to Jericho. Which of these three seems to have been the neighbor? That is Christ's question. Which of the three seems to have been the neighbor? The wisdom of Jesus' answer is simply staggering. It's astounding. If he said that the neighbor is the needy man, the one that passed, that, that was fallen on the ground, he would have set new boundaries on the commandment of love, suggesting new questions. What kind of needy? people who have been physically beaten, people who have or maybe that don't have money, those of my race or ethnicity, from my church, from my religion, my denomination. But Jesus removes the the question from this level. And so the question, who is my neighbor, is an inadequate question. The real question isn't, who is my neighbor? The real question is, who am I? Jesus teaches that the neighbor is the one who takes action, regardless of who they come across in life's journey. Do you see? I can't choose who I'll be the neighbor to. I can only act as one. I can't choose who I'll be the neighbor to. I can only act as a neighbor. The extraordinary thing about Jesus' story is the huge twist that he introduces with his hero. The least likely, the last one anyone would expect to be, you know, the hero. And on the other hand, the villains of the story are also the ones that you would least expect. The least likely ones the priest and the Levite the professional religious figures, those who you would expect to be the heroes, those who you would expect to act kindly, to act as the neighbor. Jesus makes it clear that religion can merely be a mask to cover our selfishness and self-idolatry. The priest and the Levite were in bondage to the roles that they played in their tragic religious charade. All of us run the risk of being mere personas, friends. We're at risk of being in bondage to the personas imposed by culture, by the environment around us, by pragmatism, materialism, or the cynicism of the forces that shape us in environments around us. And the tragedy is that in being personas, we aren't truly people certainly not the people that God wants and expects us to be. And so here, with a single blow, Jesus unmasks the two frauds, the priest and the Levite, as well as millions of others that they represent. And with the Samaritan, Jesus contrasts the person with the persona. The great lesson to learn here is to break the fossilized shell in which we are all tempted to live in the false religion, the fake, fraudulent religion that we claim to have as we go to church, as we dress up. It's easy to do that, my friend. It's easy to dress up, to play Christian. But you know that the the best meaning, the best definition of Christian is little Christ. Little Christs. That's what we're called to be. And on his trip here to our small planet, this is precisely who Jesus was. He was the neighbor. He was the neighbor. He cared, he loved, he forgave. He saw humans with kind eyes. And what that tells me is that the at the heart at the throne of this universe is one who loves as Jesus loved. One who loves as Jesus loved. Sometimes people are scared of God. They're scared of who he is because they don't know him. They hear some things, they remove things from context and God becomes a scary being. But when you know Jesus Christ, it's impossible to remain afraid. That's the lesson here. A mission to my neighbor is truly the analysis, the understanding of God's mission to us as the great neighbor that he is. To learn the true meaning, or to learn that the true meaning of life and happiness is not to be served, but to serve not to accumulate but to give to offer and to share and ultimately when we look back it will be those moments those actions in which we serve without any expectation of profit without any expectation of personal gain in which we used our hands our talents the skills that we have that god has given us which are only lent to us for a little while that will give real meaning to life compared to anything else. Love stands out as the greatest of all attributes and achievements. Jesus redefined the meaning of greatness because to Christ, great is the one that serves. And that is what is proved by the story of the Good Samaritan. My friend, I hope that as you... As you study this lesson, not only this week, but this entire quarter's lesson, you understand that truly we are called to be little Christs, to love as He did, to treat others as He does. Jesus inverted the pyramid of power, and we're called to continue that inversion in seeing people and laughing with them, crying with them, treating them, and treating them as humans, not as numbers. People are never numbers, they're people. And that is God's call for you as your mission to your neighbor. I'd like to remind you that these lessons, they serve to enhance your study. So study your lesson. Also here at Amazing Facts on the Granite Bay Church, we do offer you this free offer that goes hand in hand with the lesson that we just studied. It's called Footsteps, A Closer Walk with Jesus. And if you'd like this uh, free offer, you could call the number 866-788-3966, and you could ask for the offer number 736. In the USA, you could text SH163 to the number 40544, and so if you're in Continental North America, you would get a link to a digital uh, download or a digital copy of this, of this study. If you're outside the U.S., um, outside of Continental North America, you could go to study.com aftv.org slash sh163 and and you would also get a digital download and um, I hope that you continue to tune in to our Sabbath school study hours we hope that these encourage you and they enhance your study and I'd like to invite you to say a word of prayer with me right now dear Lord God thank you so much for being the God that you are thank you so much father for being the good neighbor of considering us, Lord, in your missionary efforts, not seeing us for what we do or what we deserve, but seeing us as heirs of salvation, the creatures that you created so long ago and that were kidnapped by this horrible disease, this horrible condition called sin. And you didn't content yourself in just staying far away, promising some things or saying some impressive words. You came down into the miry, mud of this world and you lived with us, you cried with us, you died our death Lord and today you offer us neighborly love and you ask us to extend that to our neighbors. Help us Lord be good neighbors, help us live as the neighbors. I ask you to bless everyone that's watching from home Um, imbue them with your spirit and allow them to act as the neighbor to those around them. Please be with us and bless us, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for spending your time here with us at the Granite Bay Hilltop Church. I hope that you join in next time of our Sabbath School Study Hour. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts, wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.